Well, today we want to actually uh, mention one more uh, aspect of our statement of faith, but it plays right into Hanukkah and, uh, and, and even current events. It's really it's very important. Actually, if you are following along, there's actually a few more statements, but we've actually covered them uh, in, other, in other places along the way. So uh, this uh, uh, statement will be the, the final one in our a statement of faith that we're going to cover, and then we'll be talking about Hanukkah, looking forward to the new year, and then uh, getting back to... Um, uh, looking uh, right at the text of the scripture and, and going through that. So anyway, this last statement that we want to talk about here, it says, Messiah Yeshua will return to Jerusalem in glory at the end of this age to rule forever on David's throne. He will effect the restoration of Israel in fullness, raise the dead, save all who belong to him, judge the wicked, not written in the book of life, who are separated from his presence, and accomplish the final tikkun olam in which Israel and the nations will be united under Messiah's rule forever. This restoration will bring everlasting joy to those who belong to him. They will live forever in an order of mutual blessing and fellowship with God in a cosmos perfected beyond description. That's a great statement uh, right there. Uh, and uh, I think that... Uh, it's important for us always to be remembering that. You know, in a way, uh, in the Brit Chadashah, in the New Covenant, in uh, 1 Peter, in the first chapter, you have this great little statement here that I think uh, is uh, very important in this regard. It begins in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua HaMashiach, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born from above to a living hope, to the resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials." And let me tell you something, I know that there's a number of us who have been and are uh, distressed by various trials. So pay attention, right? That the proof of your faith may be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That little phrase, joy inexpressible. Uh, in the King James Version, I think it says joy unspeakable, right? There's an old time uh, British uh, preacher from the earlier part of the 20th century. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. You ever hear of Martin Lloyd-Jones? Anyway, he wrote a book called Joy Unspeakable, which was, uh, you know, I can't say I, I agree with every mechanical part of his theology. <laughs> you know what I mean? However, 
You know, that's one of these books. I read that book and I was like up all night reading this book because it was just motivating. It was just, I didn't agree with everything he wrote, but it was just really motivating. Uh, and boy, joy inexpressible, joy unspeakable. And so here, Peter is saying, look, you're going through Tsuris. You're going through all kinds of problems. You're going through all kinds of things that are keeping you up at night, right? But remember that this is not all there is. Remember this inheritance that you have. Now, contrary to what we might think, may I suggest that this inheritance is not like our own personal heavenly bank account, okay? Uh, but it is all of this statement. It's like this whole thing. The return of the Messiah, the redemption of our bodies, the, uh, you know, Yeshua sitting on his throne in Jerusalem, mutual blessing of everybody in the world and, and no more uh, curse on the earth and, and it'll just be marvelous and wonderful. And that is what we all have to look forward to. We really do. Our bodies will be redeemed. It's not gonna, we're not gonna turn into Casper the friendly ghost. Okay? I, I, and, 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 and we're going to be real people living in a real world that's going to be redeemed. And man, so whatever it is that we got going, this is not all there is, right? And our identity is not based on whatever issues are going on in our lives. Our identity is based on what that future holds, see? And if you read this passage really carefully, which is really not the text of our message today, but uh, if you read it very carefully, you see that you're kept by the power of God, He's not going to let you melt, okay? You know, like the uh, wicked witch in the um, in the um, in the Wizard of Oz, right? You're not going to melt. You are going to walk through whatever you're dealing with, and as a Messiah follower, it just gets built into your life, whatever it is. All right. Uh, and so it's very important to recognize that, that what we have is a living hope, living in that it affects us now and hope in that it's going to happen. And, you know, we spend a lot of uh, time talking about, in fact, in recent messages even, talking about the fact that Yeshua is our king and he has inaugurated this kingdom. But don't forget that this is not all there is. This is not... Uh, the end result. This is all still in process. See? And sometimes we feel that, uh, I don't know, God seems to have disappointed me. And I don't know, uh, you know, uh, this is not what I signed up for or something, you know. Uh, but recognize that not only is your life, but the whole world is a work in process. All right? Everything. Everything is in process. You know, um, recently in a meeting, we were talking about <laughs> we were talking about Beth Messiah, and we were talking about how things are, you know, the way we do things. Or I think it was actually in an elders meeting. It was, and uh, you know, and I said I made a statement, and we were all in agreement with that. When I, when I look out at everything we do, it's not the way it's supposed to be yet. This is not like okay, everything is just right. The way, you know, everything, the way we, uh, the way we do this, the way we do this, the way we do this, it's just right. It's never just right. We are always, we are as a community, as individuals, as a, as a universal body of Messiah, 
as a world, a work in progress. That's why we like to say we're in the process of becoming. We are a community of lifelong learners. It's history is unfolding, whether it's our personal history, our communal history, or the history of this world. You see, uh, and so therefore there's always a tomorrow, which I could break out into song, but, but I won't on that. But there is uh, always a uh, tomorrow, uh, and there is a next thing that's going uh, uh, to happen. And if we put our eggs in the basket of God, well, we know that he is bringing this world and us forward. See? Uh, if we put all our eggs in the basket of what I can do myself, you're going to be disappointed. We're going to be disappointed and ultimately get either depressed and regretful about things in life. And, you know, sometimes we kind of just hit it well and we end up, you know, with a life that's better than others or something. But still, uh, there's always issues of regret or remorse or, uh, or disenchantment or disillusionment. Uh, whether it's in people or an institution or whatever, we always have to remember that, that there is this inheritance laid up for us, right? All right. So what does that have to do with Hanukkah? What does that have to do with uh, uh, our statement here? Well, it has to do with Hanukkah uh, in, in this way. Hanukkah is the story of Jewish victory uh, over an oppressor. Uh, who had challenged the, the very identity of the Jewish people. Without going into all of the history, uh, about 165 years or so uh, before Yeshua, uh, the uh, uh, Judea was being ruled by the Syrians. Okay, uh, And due to certain circumstances... Uh, they, uh, militants of Syria came into Jerusalem and desecrated the temple so that it was unusable. And uh, they made uh, certain rules and regulations and laws that kept the Jewish people from worshiping God in the way that they were supposed to. Now, there were some Jews who said, okay, this is not so bad. You know, we'll just become like them and uh, they'll leave us alone. But others, on the other hand, uh, said, no, this cannot be. And those people became known as the Maccabees. Okay, uh, And over the course of about three and a half years, they were able to overtake the Syrians and they were able to recapture the temple. Uh, and they cleansed the temple and they dedicated the temple. Okay, And so Hanukkah is the celebration of the dedication of the temple. All right. Now, the story is, in the Talmud, the, the tradition is, is that miraculously, the Ner Tamid uh, was, you know, they didn't have electricity in those days, right? So uh, they only had enough oil for it to last for one day, but it miraculously lasted for eight days until more oil could be obtained. And so we celebrate the holiday for eight days. Now, there's another reason that's given to us in uh, the book of the Maccabees. It's not in the Bible, but it does serve as a helpful history. All right. And uh, that is, is that when they rededicated the temple, they, they wanted, it was such a joyous holiday, they decided to celebrate Sukkot in, in Kislev, commonly in our world known as December. Okay. Uh, and 
Uh, and, and so, uh, eight days, when you add in Shmini Atzeret, the extra day of Sukkot, right? It's eight days long, so uh, the holiday lasts uh, for uh, eight days. We eat potato pancakes, we eat latkes, because they're made in oil. And, uh, uh, and so, uh, therefore, it reminds us of the oil lasting eight days. In Israel, uh, donuts, okay? Sort of. Sufganyot, one of my favorite Hebrew words to say out loud. Okay, uh, and uh, and because also fr- you know fried bread, right? Basically, is what that is, and sweetened up, and so on. Uh, and uh, and so we remember the oil lasting those days, and we remember this great moment in Jewish history. However, this great moment in Jewish history was somewhat short-lived, because the very next generation of Maccabees uh, uh, were not as uh, concerned about. Uh, their uh, uh, Jewish identity and, and worshiping in the right way. And, and the history going from about 150 to the days of Yeshua is uh, it's an, it, it's, it's an interesting and complicated history to read. Um, uh, and it's, unfortunately, you see a tremendous amount of Roman influence and Greek influence and assimilation and a lot of bad marriages going on there, uh, and all kinds of things uh, happening, okay? Uh, and so when we look at the story of Hanukkah, I, I, we see here, okay, so these people, they were able to fight against the oppressors, and they defeated uh, the oppressors, uh, and, uh, and they were a victorious and and they were able to cleanse the temple, and they were able to uh, dedicate the temple. Now, if we, were, if we were living there at that time, I'm sure that it was a very messy affair. I'm sure that when you have that kind of fighting, good people die, uh, uh, it seems all very, um, uh, very unfair, it seems... Um, uh, uh, that you, you wonder, you know, where is, um, where is God, uh, uh, in all of this? And, uh, and it just seems like, is this what God would have us do? This kind of, of, uh, intrigue and killing and war and, and, and all of that. Uh, uh, and of course, uh, even to start with, uh, the people were not in a, in a place of, real godliness. Uh, and so, how can we celebrate such a holiday? You know, uh, it wasn't like uh, there was a prophet uh, or the Lord of hosts did this or that, you know. Uh, so, uh, obviously, like you read in, in Joshua or Judges and, you know, in, in, the, biblical, uh, in the biblical history. But this is a, a great reminder of the providence of God of God working in the lives of ordinary people, some of whom may be more spiritual than others, but bringing uh, uh, his will to pass. God certainly desired that the Jewish people would not lose their identity because this was more than the simply religious freedom as sometimes it's boiled down to. This was about uh, the uh, chosen people uh, uh, totally assimilating and not having an identity anymore, and really becoming extinct as a people, you see. 
Uh, and, and so this, uh, God would not let that happen. And, and in his faithfulness, despite the sins of the people, he empowered them to be able to defeat their oppressors who were, who were much greater than them, who were much more powerful uh, uh, than them. And so he empowered them. And that's why uh, the famous verse uh, that's related to uh, uh, Hanukkah is found in Zechariah chapter 4 in verse 6. The phrase, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That even though uh, God was not a visible force, through the uh, efforts of this motley crew of people, uh, there was indeed a victory. And it is quite amazing because the generations leading up to that period of time and the generations after were not uh, stellar at all in terms of their relating to God and, and, and all of that. Uh, uh, but God, at this moment, raised up people uh, to stand uh, uh, for him uh, and to fulfill his purposes in making sure that there was a Jewish testimony, in making sure that there uh, was not a complete uh, assimilation. And of course, 165 or so years later, uh, this was the temple with a few renovations to it, uh, that uh, Yosef and Miriam brought baby Yeshua to. Uh, and, uh, uh, and just as we read in the prophet Haggai, even though this, uh, this temple was nothing compared to Solomon's temple, it was greater in the sense that in this temple, you know, the glory of the Lord uh, came in the flesh. Uh, and so these sovereign providential events of God uh, that we celebrate at Hanukkah uh, is very important uh, to our history. And uh, as we like to say uh, at Hanukkah, it's not only about the victory, but about the value of identity, the value of worship, the value of the land and the providence of God. And all of that adds up to the grace, uh, the grace of God. Now, now move up from uh, the second century BCE all the way up to the 19th century uh, uh, CE, okay? Uh, and you have now another great providential act of God. Uh, last Thursday night and this coming Thursday night, uh, we are having our mini course on Zionism, okay? Uh, and uh, uh, in a way, you could say that a pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-pre-Zionism uh, was in the days of the Maccabees. Uh, there are some of the very same principles uh, involved here. The providence of God bringing forth a nation. We saw that secular Jews uh, and secular nations, good and bad, all contributed to the establishment of the modern state of Israel. You know, it's very interesting uh, when you uh, look at it. It took pogroms and a holocaust and two world wars uh, and socialism, basically, uh, to establish uh, the, uh, what, is, what Israel became. Uh, and it's a fascinating history. Jews fought, good and bad. 
and at sometimes even fought each other to be able to live and worship as Jews. That is what uh, the early Zionists were all about. If you want to know more, you can come this Thursday because at the beginning we'll recap a little bit of where we left off. All right? Uh, and, uh, and so it's important to understand that all very providential acts, not, um, you, know, you know, something that's very interesting is that uh, sometimes we romanticize the Jewish world as if uh, uh, going all the way back, uh, you know, to Abraham, uh, they, uh, that all the Jewish people were shtetl Jews, you know, were Jews uh, living in uh, little communities in Poland and just wanted to worship God, and if, if only we could be left alone. What you may not know is the people that actually went to Eretz Yisrael, uh, it was called Palestine, you know, before 1948, uh, that the people that went there, their feeling was, we want to shake all that off. We want to shake all this off that keeps us down and, and keeps us a weak, uh, a weak people and all of that. So the people that actually went to Eretz Yisrael, where people are saying, we're looking for a new world where we can live freely uh, as Jews. And they were not mostly concerned with religious issues. Uh, they really weren't. Uh, uh, and that's amazing when you think about it, uh, that God brought this uh, to pass. Uh, very much like, in a sense, the Maccabees, fighting for the temple, fighting for their identity. Even though these uh, the Jewish settlers uh, that went to uh, you know to Eretz Yisrael uh, were not that religious, they knew they were Jews and they knew that that's where they had to go, you know. And and here's something, um, you know, a popular uh, conventional wisdom is is that the 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 founder of the movement of Zionism. There was a lot of thought before it, but the founder, you know, Theodore Herzl that uh, some will say he didn't really care whether it was, uh, uh, you know, Israel, uh, because he tried to convince uh, people to uh, accept Uganda. Okay, so now here's the, the real story is, is that uh, he had great foresight, and he knew that this newfound freedom in Western Europe of Jews being able to assimilate was really going to be short-lived and that uh, there was a new kind of anti-Jewish attitude, and that new anti-Jewish attitude is it doesn't matter whether we convert to Christianity, it doesn't matter if we assimilate, it doesn't matter, because it was a racial, ethnic uh, hatred, and you can't get away from being who you are. And he believed that the clock was ticking in the late 1800s. There were pogroms in more in Eastern Europe, uh, but, you know, when these armies of the Russian Empire would go in and rape and pillage Jewish communities, uh, he believed that the clock was ticking. And so we've got to get our people out. And there's nowhere for us to go. Well, where did people go? Uh, you know why? People came to America. There was, because Eretz Yisrael really wasn't an option yet unless you were a real pioneer. And so people came to America. Uh, and a few other places in South America as well. Uh, but he believed that Palestine, which became, of course, you know, the, the real name of Israel, in the, even in Bible times, uh, was the place. But he was able to make a deal with the British that Uganda was given as an option, never as the final destiny, but as a, like a like a stop along the way. 
But providentially, you know, sometimes a stop along the way ends up being uh, forever, right? Uh, and so providentially, that didn't work out. But it was never his intention that that would be the final uh, destiny of the Jewish people uh, in Africa, but in, um, but in Israel. Okay, and so, but he was a secular Jew from Austria. But see, God put this in his heart. Yes, there were specific circumstances that brought it about, but he, he had this conviction. And others had this conviction uh, uh, that, that God brought about. They did not realize it, but that God had brought about. However, it's very interesting. I want to read to you uh, uh, just a little brief uh, uh, paragraph here uh, about uh, some Jewish believers who attended the Third uh, Zionist Congress. This was uh, uh, around. This was. This took place uh, in uh, 1899. Okay. All right. This is the first. This is a memoir of a man by the name of David Barron. Okay, it's like a, 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 a diary entry. This is the first day of the great public meetings of the Zionist Congress. We began the day uh, by a united prayer meeting at my hotel room at Hotel Victoria at 8.30, uh, at which eight Hebrew Christian brethren were present. It was good for us as those who anticipate our nation in allegiance to Zion's true king, in whom we have found life and salvation, to mean at the throne of grace, to plead for our people, and especially for the delegates and leaders in this Zionist movement, and that the day may be hastened when all Israel shall understand that wonderful inscription which was on the cross, Yeshua the Messiah, King of the Jews. At 9.45 a.m., I'm now in my place at the journalist's table in the body of the Congress Hall among the delegates. What a splendidly convenient building is this Stadt Casino, popularly known as the Jewish House of Commons. This, this was in Basel, Switzerland. Now, uh, as I shared with the class, they originally wanted to have these first Zionist congresses in Munich, Germany, because there were excellent Jewish restaurants. That's what it, that's what it was in the history. Uh, it, it, some things never change. Uh, but the Jews in Munich... This is how they, see, the Jews in Munich, Germany, free society, were afraid to have this convention in their city. So they rejected it, said, we, we can't have it here. And so that's why Switzerland was chosen. This large hall would seat about 2,000 people, and there are quite a number of other small halls and rooms in the building besides. In the body of the hall, only delegates and journalists are admitted the former all wearing Zion, the, the Zionist badge, a large gold or gilt pin in the shape of a, a Magen a David, a Star of David, uh, with a blue silk rosette for the background. The legend on the pin is the same as on the Zionist medal, designed by the renowned Jewish sculptor Beer. That is of a poor wandering family, father, mother with a babe at the breast and two other children besides the eldest of whom, a boy, has already a wanderer's staff in his hand. I want to tell you, uh, that, that insignia is, the ins is very similar to another insignia that took place in Europe, not in, the, not in the 1940s, but in Russia in the 1910s. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. 
But that was the insignia of we're, we're, we're wanderers and we're moving, uh, you know, to the promised land. Okay. Now, what's, what's more interesting for us is what's on the back of the pin. All right? Okay. He says, this group is meant to represent the whole tribe of the wandering foot and weary breast. To them in their hopelessness and dejection, an angel appears in the shape of a graceful female figure representing Zionism or the national idea. That's what they called it. The national idea. Okay? Who lays at her right hand on the shoulder of the dejected man and with her left points eastward where the sun of hope may be seen rising on their ancient fatherland on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. On the other side of this medal are the Hebrew words taken from Ezekiel 37. Behold, I will take the children of Israel from the midst of the nations and will bring them to their own land. Isn't that interesting? So it goes on. Then uh, he quotes uh, one of the uh, speakers saying these words. Okay? It's speaking of the origins of uh, uh, Zionism. It seemed as if we were witnessing a miracle which affected ourselves and all around us. We felt ourselves part and parcel of a fairy tale in which we saw our brethren thousands of years buried again become flesh and blood. We wanted in the joy of this reunion to rehearse the sad history of the hundreds of years in which we had been dead and in our tomb in a grave which lacked the peace of a grave. In these three years, see, since the first Zionist Congress, uh, the general condition of the Jewish nation in all lands has been ascertained. No modification occurs or likely to occur unless Jews themselves bring it to pass. And that kind of gives you a sense of it. Uh, in a sense, like those Maccabees, right? But here uh, we have uh, a Zionism, uh, the national idea of a Jewish homeland. Uh, uh, inspired by the persecution of Jewish people in a world that they, where they thought they were emancipated. Uh, this is God at work. Even though, you know, you had these eight Jewish believers praying, uh, but you did not have, uh, uh, you know, the rest of the Congress praying, but it was about strategy. How are we going to bring this to pass? And there was not much of a sense of, a, you know, God is going to do it. No, this is what you know, what we, uh, what we must do. So the providence of God is very important because uh, in a world of great disappointment, the Maccabean world was greatly uh, a world of great disappointment, and the world of the Jews in the late 1800s and first part of the 20th century, great, profound disappointment thinking we're emancipated, you know, after the French Revolution and, and the emancipation of Jews in, in Europe where we could come out of the ghetto and, and be part of the world. No, even then, even in that circumstance, we're still who we are. And for some of us, we might feel that way about our own lives. Here, I, I know the Messiah, but sh look, all around me is bad, right? But you see, God providentially had his hand on these different uh, generations. Now, when we talk about the end of time, when we talk about the consummation, when we talk about the return of the Messiah and the Alam Haba, that, that great statement that we, uh, 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 that, that we talked about at the beginning, 
that we believe that Yeshua is going to return, he's going to sit on his throne in Jerusalem forever, that also happens in world history. He's not just going to drop down uh, in a parachute, you know, from uh, you know, the, the heavenly plane or something. All right? Just like the land of Israel was not established by one day waking up and, oh, look, we hear a chorus of angels singing and now there's a country uh, called Israel on May 14, 1948. No, lots of bloodshed, good and bad people dying along the way. With those Maccabees, same thing. We romanticize these things, but there were a lot of horrendous things that took place during that period of time. And so even though we, we see the hand of God, but it's, it takes place in a world that is full of sin and sickness and a mess, you see. Now at the end, let's take a look in our Bibles and let's look at how world history might, uh, uh, was understood by the prophets. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Okay, Zechariah chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Masa in Hebrew, and some versions might say oracle or, or burden, but it usually had to do with something related to judgment when you look at most of those uh, terms, uh, most of the places where that term is used. Okay? Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. The reason it says that is, is because God is involved in everything. That's kind of what the point is there. He made everything, he sustains everything, and it may not look like it, uh, but he's still holding the world in the palm of his hand. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. Okay? So, uh, Jerusalem he says, is going to be a cup of reeling. When you read that word, and again, in other places, it almost always refers to a cup of wrath, a cup of wrath of the nations. And so Jerusalem itself is, is going to be, as, he's, uh, uh, as he will say in the next verse, um, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all the peoples, like a stumbling stone, uh, something very difficult. And uh, you know, uh, if you're a gardener or you live in a tract home <laughs> where they build houses and, but they don't actually like remove all the rocks, you ever notice after like a few years, big rocks start to like show up, uh, on your lawn, right? And you dig and, and this is like big rock. No wonder my grass can't be green, right? Uh, and, and, and it just seems to happen and happen and happen. Uh, and so Jerusalem is like one of these stones. It, it's like uh, uh, the nations trip over Jerusalem. Uh, the nations fall over Jerusalem. Uh, in trying to either lift it up or get to it, they hurt themselves and they're judged. And, and so Jerusalem will be, will be as if, so to speak, a cup of judgment, a heavy stone. Notice it says, all who lift it will be severely injured. Now, we could get pretty graphic on that, but we won't, all right? Because when you lift something heavy, bad things can happen, all right? And that's kind of the picture that is uh, uh, being uh, drawn for us. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it, all right? 
So this takes place in real-time space history, right? It, it kind of looks like the Maccabees. It kind of looks like the wars of Israel in modern-day uh, Israel. But as we'll see, it's something much more cosmic uh, and global uh, in scope. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every, every horse of the peoples uh, with blindness. Right? I don't know exactly what that means. You can talk all day about technology. But I, don't even, I don't even care. But the point is, is that uh, God, without being visible, is going to cause these nations to fall. Now, we don't have time, but if you read carefully passages like Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, there it says that God will put hooks in the jaws of nations and pull them down to Jerusalem. In other words, they think that they're strategizing and doing this, and the, but God is orchestrating the whole thing. Okay, Can we understand all of that? No. That's why we're the, we're the clay, right? He's the potter, okay? All right. Then we see, then, then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. And so the clans of Judah, it's actually, it's a very interesting phrase. We were having a Bible study on it. But the families of Judah will say, wow, they're really powerful in, in, in Jerusalem. God is empowering the people. Okay, then it says, uh, In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves. That should sound a little familiar going back to Genesis uh, as a metaphor of the, of the covenant that God makes where this uh, picture, this picture of God passes through the, the uh, cut animals. It's very interesting. So they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. Okay, So he's saying, I'm going to empower the Jewish people to defeat their enemies. On the ground, horizontally, this is not a pretty scene. This is an ugly scene. Good people die, bad people die, but this will be the world that Yeshua breaks into. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah, first in the order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God like an angel of the Lord before them. So what this verse says is they're going to be empowered as if the presence of God was right there, but they will be empowered in that day. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. All right? Uh, uh, now, you know, in uh, we don't have time to turn there, but if you were to look in the third chapter of Joel's prophecy, 
He says there, I'm going to bring all the nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I'm going to judge them on behalf of Israel. And, and you see this in other places as well. And so God will uh, judge, will destroy the peoples, destroy the nations that come against uh, uh, Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Then the next few verses describe great weeping. Great weeping. But what's very interesting is the little phrase here when it says the spirit of grace and of supplication. In Hebrew, uh, it says ruach chen v'tachanunim. That's fascinating, okay? Uh, because first of all, the you know uh, ruach achain means grace, the spirit of favor, the, sp- the favor of God. God will pour out His spirit upon them. But then it says, you know, in your English Bibles, it might say end of prayer or end of supplication, v'tachanunim. Uh, well, every day there is a particular uh, set of prayers uh, every uh, morning. Uh, that's in the Siddur called Tachanun, okay? What, what these are. And their prayers of confession is what they are. So <clears throat> here it begins with, the, with this statement. He, the merciful one, is forgiving of iniquity and does not destroy, frequently withdrawing his anger, not arousing his entire rage. You, O Lord, withhold not your mercy from us. May your kindness and your truth always protect us. Save us. O Lord our God, and gather us from among the peoples to give thanks to your holy name and to glory in your praise. And it goes on. But there's a little paragraph here where what you do is when you come to that paragraph every morning, first of all, you say this prayer sitting down. So everyone is sitting when they say this prayer. And then at this particular moment, and people say this, pray this silently, by the way. It's prayed silently. But at this particular time, what people do is if they're sitting at a, at a table or they're in a chair where there's another chair ahead of them, you, you put your hand on your forehead and you go down like this. Or if you're just like sitting, like free sitting like this, you would go like this. You, you would just like so. You'd like lean down with your hand on your forehead and you would say uh, these words. I am exceedingly distressed. Let us fall into the Lord's hand, for his mercies are abundant. But let me not fall into human hands. O compassionate and gracious one, I have sinned before you. Lord, who is full of mercy, have mercy on me and accept my supplication. And then there's a quote from Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chastise me in your rage. Favor me, Lord, for I am feeble. Heal me, Lord, for my bones shudder. My soul is utterly confounded, and you, O Lord, how long? Desist, release my soul, save me as befits your kindness. And it goes on and on. Okay? And so it's very interesting that that's the word here in Zechariah chapter 12. And so may I suggest it's that kind of prayer. It is prayers of confession that God actually pours out his spirit of grace and mercy on them, which causes them to cry out to him for forgiveness 
And in so they recognize him whom they have pierced. They recognize indeed uh, uh, Yeshua, uh, the Messiah. And so we see God empowers them uh, to physically fight against an enemy. And then the Spirit of God is poured out among them. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, and all Israel shall be saved. But we see here this confession and this recognition of the Messiahship of Yeshua. And they're mourning, weeping over their sins, repenting, you see. Then we see in the 13th chapter, it says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for impurity. And it will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the hands, and they will be no longer remembered, and I will remove the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. So you see, in that day, it's not going to be just this uh, the, the Maccabees recapturing the temple and cleansing it, but still not a real redemption. It's not going to be uh, reclaiming our ancient promised land and continually fighting wars to be able to stay in the land to this very day. But the day is going to come when all of our people from the four corners of the earth, yes, will return and will fight the nations. But the hand of God will be on it. But it, this, this is where it will be a consummation. In this case, our people will recognize the Messiah and will recognize the sins of our people and will repent and will put down the hand on the head and say, Lord, forgive us. Show us kindness and mercy. And will receive the Messiah and this will be the transformation of the world. And that is what Paul says and means in Romans chapter 11 when he says here in verse 12, Now their transgressions be the riches for the world and their failure be the riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, if we've rejected the Messiah and this good news goes around the world, how much greater is it going to be for the world when... Our people do embrace Yeshua. See? So he says, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them, for if their rejection be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? A euphemism for the resurrection, the Olam Habai, Yeshua sitting on his throne in Jerusalem and the nations coming and celebrating Sukkot and, and all of the enemies of God's people will be judged. And even if we read in another place in Ezekiel chapter 20, you have this picture of Israel being brought out into the wilderness and Israel being judged. And all that are left is this remnant who believe. Now regarding this remnant, notice, jump down to verse 7, 8 and 9 of chapter 13 of Zechariah. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. And again, the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part into the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. 
They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So right after he talks about this great moment when, uh, you know, this great war, uh, and then Israel will be redeemed and repent and the land will be cleansed, he sort of has this refrain going back to this one who was pierced. It's sort of like a, a, a refrain uh, where now we have sort of a heavenly view of, of how this is taking place. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, okay, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. This certainly uh, is a, a picture uh, of the Messiah, the Messiah, the shepherd, who suffers, and the people are scattered. But look what he calls him. And against the man, my associate. That is a great, uh, a great little word there. We're going to look more at this, I think, uh, next week. In fact, I think I'm just going to leave us uh, hanging there uh, because this was going to require a little bit more treatment uh, than what, I'm, what I could do now. All right. And so, I, I, you know, when we think about Hanukkah, when we think about uh, uh, the, the Maccabees, when we think about the current state of affairs uh, in this world in Israel, uh, let us remember that God had his hand on all of this, and he uses all kinds of people, he uses all kinds of situations to move history forward. And so let me just challenge all of us in our own lives, if we are experiencing sort of a, a Maccabee moment in our own lives, where oppressors have come, uh, and uh, we don't know what to do. And so, you know, uh, we, um, we pray that we need to do, and we need to be encouraged that we need to do, but we need to also make right choices and move forward and recognize that even though it may be really difficult, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It doesn't mean uh, that he's given up on you. It means that you live in a world that is not redeemed. And we suffer the consequences of a world that is not redeemed. And it infiltrates everything. It's kind of like if you've ever been in a sandstorm. That everything has sand in it. Even the stuff that is like, uh, you know, sealed completely. It gets in everything. And so in our own lives... The, the, the junk of this world gets in everything. It gets in our houses, it gets in our work, it gets in our head, and we're constantly having to fight it off. And so this morning, if you are discouraged, maybe like those Jews back in the second century um, BC, or, or maybe like the Jews right after World War I, who thought that, ah, oh, look, the, the British are coming to redeem us when they absolutely turned their back completely on the Jews and, and it was a mess, a horrible mess which caused great despair among those people. You might be in great despair uh, today. Be encouraged to know that God is moving you forward. Just keep going. Make right choices. Seek good counsel. Don't stop. Don't just, don't stick your head in the sand. Don't pity yourself but keep moving forward. God will sustain you. And especially if you know Yeshua, because the Ruach lives in you and will guide you. It doesn't mean that it's always a pretty path, 
but that's why it's important to be part of a community so that you can be enveloped around and move forward with others with you. And you just keep going. You see, because we know that the day is going to come, we may see it ourselves or we may not, but that day is going to come when that inheritance will be something that we will enjoy forever. And so we keep going. Just as Peter said, you know, we have this living hope. And even though we're going through fiery trials right now, the power of God is keeping us to get there. And we will get there. We may see it in our lifetime, or we may be resting with Yeshua for a season until that day comes. But Paul said, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of our body. That day is going to come. That day is going to come for Israel. That day is going to come for the world. And so let us keep moving forward toward the author and finisher of our faith, Yeshua. And let us therefore be dedicated, dedicated to the cause of Messiah, no matter what. Let's pray. Lord God, when I think back on on those uh, early Zionists who faced a tremendous hardship in the land, Lord, who faced uh, the hardship of, of uh, terrible atrocities taking place in the land, facing uh, uh, the, the land that was uh, uh, very difficult to, uh, you know, do, to grow things and do agriculture. But Lord, you made the desert bloom. You, Lord, parted the waters, parted the seas. Lord, when we think about two world wars, pogroms, and a holocaust, we could say, where were you? But Lord, in this sin-sick world, you were moving history forward. And Lord, in our own world, and certainly at the end of time, of our time, uh, 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 until Yeshua comes, it will be the same. It's going to be the same. But Lord, we know that day will come when he will sit on his throne in Jerusalem and all the nations will come and celebrate Sukkot, as it says in chapter 14 of Zechariah. And uh, you'll cleanse Israel from all her sins and the lion will lay down with the lamb. There'll be peace in this world. Uh, uh, all the things that, that we desire. Uh, Lord, we look forward to that day when we read, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Lord, we look forward to that day. And may the knowledge of that great day get us through today. Get us through the disappointments of today, the hardships of today, the, um, the anxiety of today. Lord, let us remember that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. May we be encouraged as we think about your providence, you acting with your invisible hand in this world. May we be like those Maccabees. May we be able to recapture the temple and cleanse it and dedicate it unto God. Uh, Lord, may we uh, be able to celebrate Hanukkah in our own lives. We pray in Messiah's name. Amen.